Hello everyone, I'm Kathleen Pelly. Welcome to the special omnibus edition of Journey with Story, where you can listen to all of this month's episodes one after the other. And just so you know, there will be no special intro for the individual stories, no added details and no shout-outs. If you want to hear all of those, then you'll need to listen to the individual episodes and not this version. Got it? Oh, mums, dads, grown-ups, you can download some free colouring sheets at our website, www.journeywithstory.com. Let's take an omnibus journey with story. Let's take a journey with Cap O' Rushes, and this version was written by Flora Annie Steele. Once upon a time, a long, long while ago, when all the world was young and all sorts of strange things happened, there lived a very rich gentleman whose wife had died, leaving him three lovely daughters. They were the apple of his eye, and he loved them with all his heart. Now one day, he wanted to find out if they loved him in return. So he said to the eldest, How much do you love me, my dear? And she answered as pat as may be, As I love my life. Oh, very good, my dear, said he, and he gave her a kiss. Then he said to the second girl, How much do you love me, my dear? And she answered as swift as thought, Better than all the world beside. Good, he replied, and patted her on the cheek. Then he turned to the youngest, who was also the prettiest. And how much do you love me, my dearest? Now, the youngest daughter was not only pretty, she was clever. So she thought a moment. Then she said slowly, I love you as fresh meat loves salt. Now, when her father heard this, he was very angry because he really loved her more than the others. What? he said. If that is all you give me in return for all I've given you, out of my house you go. So there and then he turned her out of the home where she had been born and bred and shut the door in her face. Not knowing where to go, the poor girl wandered on and on. She wandered on until she came to a big marsh where the reeds grew ever so tall and the rushes swayed in the wind like a field of corn. There she sat down and plaited some rushes to make herself an overall and then a cap to match. In this way she hid her fine clothes as well as her beautiful golden hair that was all set with milk-white pearls. For she was a wise girl and thought that in such a desolate countryside perhaps some robber might fall in with her and try to rob her of her fine clothes and jewels. It took a long time to braid the dress and cap, and while she braided she sang a little song. Hide my hair, O cap o' rushes, hide my heart, 
or robe or rushes. Sure, my answer had no fault. I love him more than he loves salt. And the birds of the marsh listened and sang back to her. Capo rushes shed no tear. Robo rushes have no fear. With these words, if fault he'd find, sure your father must be blind. When her task was finished, the girl put on her robe of rushes, and it hid all her fine clothes. And she put on the cap, and it hid all her beautiful hair, so that she looked quite a common country girl. But the marsh birds flew away singing as they flew. Capo rushes, we can see. Robo rushes, what you be? Fair and clean and fine and tidy. So you'll be whatever betide you. By this time, the girl was very, very hungry. So she wandered on and she wandered on. But nearly a cottage or a hamlet did she see, till just at sunsetting, she came on a great house on the edge of the marsh. It had a fine front door to it, but mindful of her dress of rushes, she went round to the back, and there she saw a strapping fat scullion maid washing pots and pans with a very sulky face. So. Being a clever girl, she guessed what the maid was wanting, and she said, "If I may have a night's lodging, I will scrub the pots and pans for you." Why, ears luck," replied the scullery maid, ever so pleased. "I was just wanting badly to go walking with my sweetheart, so if you will do my work, you shall share my bed and." Have a bite of my supper. Only mind you, scrub the pots clean, or cook will scold me. Now, next morning, the pots were scraped so clean that they looked like new, and the saucepans were polished like silver. And the cook said to the scullion, "Oh, clean these pots, not you! I'll swear." So the maid had no choice but to tell the truth. At once, the cook told the scullery maid to be on her way. For what use was she when this new girl was so much better? But the girl stood up to the cook, saying, "The maid was kind to me and gave me a night's lodging." She said, "So now I will stay without wage and do the dirty work for her." So Caparushes, for so they called her, since she would give no other name, stayed on and cleaned the pots and scraped the saucepans. Now it so happened that the son of the household came of age, and to celebrate the occasion, a ball was given to the neighbourhood, for the young man was a grand dancer and loved nothing so well as a night of dancing. It was a very fine party, and after supper was served, the servants were allowed to go and watch the festivities from the gallery of the ballroom. But Caporushes refused to go. For she also was a grand dancer, and she was afraid that when she heard the fiddles starting a merry jig, she might start dancing. So she excused herself by saying she was too tired with scraping pots and washing saucepans. And when the others went off, she crept up to her bed. But her bedroom door had been left open, and as she lay in her bed, 
She could hear the fiddlers fiddling away and the tramp of dancing feet. Then she upped and off with her cap and robe of rushes, and there she was, ever so fine and tidy. She was in the ballroom in a trice, joining in the jig, and none was more beautiful or better dressed than she. While, as for her dancing, her master's son singled her out at once and with the finest of bows engaged her as his partner for the rest of the night. So she danced away to her heart's content while the whole room was agog trying to find out who the beautiful young stranger could be. But of course, she gave them no clues and finally making some excuse, slipped away before the ball finished. So when her fellow servants came to bed, there she was in hers, in her cap and robe of rushes, pretending to be fast asleep. Next morning, however, the maids could talk of nothing but the beautiful stranger. "'You should have seen her,' they said. "'She was the loveliest young lady as ever, you see. Not a bit like the likes away.' Her golden hair was all silvered with pearls and her dress, oh, law, you wouldn't believe how she was dressed. Young master never took his eyes off her. And Caparushes only smiled and said with a twinkle in her eye, I should like to see her, but I don't think I ever shall. Oh, yes, you will, they replied. For young master has ordered another ball tonight in hopes she will come to dance again. But that evening, Cap O'Rushes refused once more to go to the gallery, saying she was too tired with cleaning pots and scraping saucepans. And once more, when she heard the fiddlers fiddling, she said to herself, I must have one dance, just one with the young master. He dances so beautifully. For she felt certain he would dance with her, and sure enough, when she had upped and offed with her cap and robe of rushes, there he was at the door waiting for her to come, for he had determined to dance with no one else. So he took her by the hand, and they danced down the ballroom. It was a sight of all sights. Never were such dancers. So young, so handsome, so fine, and so merry. But once again, Caporushes kept to herself and just slipped away on some excuse in time, so that when her fellow servants came to their beds, they found her in hers, pretending to be fast asleep. But her cheeks were all flushed, and her breath came fast. So they said, She is dreaming, we hope her dreams are happy. But next morning, they were full of what she had missed, Never was such a beautiful young gentleman as young master. Never was such a beautiful young lady. Never was such beautiful dancing. And everyone else had stopped theirs to look on. And Caporushes, with a twinkle in her eyes, said, I should like to see her, but I'm sure I never shall. Oh, yes, they replied. If you come tonight, you're sure to see her, for young master has ordered another ball in hopes... The beautiful stranger will come again. It's easy to say he is madly in love with her. Then Caparushes told herself she would not dance again, since it was not fit for a happy young master to be in love with his scullery maid. But alas, 
The moment she heard the fiddlers fiddling, she just upped and off with her rushes, and there she was, fine and tidy as ever. She didn't even have to brush her beautiful golden hair, and once again she was in the ballroom in a trice, dancing away with young master, who never took his eyes off her, and implored her to tell him who she was. But she only told him that she never, never, never would come to dance any more, so that he must say goodbye. And he held her hand so fast that she had a job to get away, and lo and behold, his ring came off his finger, and as she ran up to her bed, there it was in her hand. She had just time to put on her cap and robe of rushes when her fellow servants came trooping in and found her awake. It was the noise you made coming upstairs, she made excuse. But they said, Not way, it is the whole place that is in an uproar, searching for the beautiful stranger. Young master, he tried to detain her, but she slipped from him like an eel. But he declares he will find her, for if he doesn't, he will die of love of her. Then Caporushes laughed. Oh, young men don't die of love, says she. He will find someone else. But he didn't. He spent his whole time looking for his beautiful dancer, but go where he might and ask whom he would, he never heard anything about her, and day by day he grew thinner and thinner and paler and paler, until at last he took to his bed, and the housekeeper came to the cook and said, Cook the nicest dinner you can cook, for young master is eating nothing. Then the cook prepared soups and jellies and creams and roast chicken and bread sauce, but the young man would have none of them. And Caporushes cleaned the pots and scraped the saucepans and said nothing. Then the housekeeper came crying and said to the cook, Prepare some gruel for young master. Perhaps he'd take that. If not, he will die for love of the beautiful dancer. If she could see him now, she would have pity on him. So the cook began to make the gruel, and Caporushes left, scraping saucepans, and watched her. Let me stir it, she said, while you fetch a cup from the pantry room. So Caporushes stirred the gruel, and what did she do but slip young master's ring into it before the cook came back. Then the butler took the cup upstairs on a silver salver. But when the young master saw it, he waved it away, till the butler with tears begged him just to taste it. So the young master took a silver spoon and stirred the gruel, and he felt something hard at the bottom of the cup. And when he fished it up, lo, it was his own ring. Then he sat up in bed and said quite loud, "'Send for the cook!' And when she came, he asked her who made the gruel. I did, she said, for she was half pleased and half frightened. Then he looked at her all over and said, No, you didn't, you're too stout. Tell me who made it and you shan't be harmed. Then the cook began to cry. If you please, sir, I did make it, but but Caporushes stirred it. And who is Caporushes? asked the young man. If you please, sir... Caporushes is the scullion, whimpered the cook. Then the young man sighed and fell back on his pillow. Oh, send Caporushes here, he said in a faint voice, 
for he really was very near dying. And when Caporushes came, he just looked at her cap and her robe of rushes and turned his face to the wall. But he asked her in a weak little voice, Ah, oh, from whom did you get that ring? Now when Caporushes saw the poor young man so weak and worn with love for her, her heart melted and she replied softly, From him that gave it to me, she said, and oft with her cap and robe of rushes. And there she was as fine and tidy as ever, with her beautiful golden hair all silvered over with pearls. And when the young man caught sight of her, he sat up in bed as strong as may be and drew her to him and gave her a great big kiss. So of course they were to be married, in spite of her being only a scullery maid, for she told no one who she was. Now everyone far and near was asked to the wedding. Amongst the invited guests was Cap O'Rush's father, who from grief at losing his favourite daughter had lost his sight and was very dull and miserable. However, as a friend of the family, he had to come to the young master's wedding. Now the marriage feast was to be the finest ever seen, but Cap O'Rush's went to her friend the cook and said, Dress every dish without one mite of salt. Oh, that'll be rare and nasty, replied the cook. But because she prided herself on having let Caporushes stir the gruel and so save the young master's life, she did as she was asked and dressed every dish for the wedding breakfast without one mite of salt. Now, when the company sat down to table, their faces were full of smiles and content, for all the dishes looked so nice and tasty. But no sooner had the guests begun to eat than their faces fell, for nothing can be tasty without salt. Then Caporush's blind father, whom his daughter had seated next to her, burst out crying. What is the matter? she asked him. Then the old man sobbed. I had a daughter whom I loved dearly, dearly, and I asked her how much she loved me, and she replied, as fresh meat loves salt. And I was angry with her and turned her out of the house and home, for I thought she didn't love me at all. But now I see she loved me best of all. And as he said the words, his eyes were opened, and there beside him was his daughter, lovelier than ever. And she gave him one hand, and her husband, the young master, the other. And she laughed, saying, I love you both as fresh meat loves salt. And after that, they were all happy forevermore.
Now, let's take a journey with How the Speckled Hen Got Her Speckles. Once upon a time, ages and ages ago, there was a little white hen. One day, she was busily engaged in scratching the soil to find worms and insects for her breakfast. And as she worked, she sang over and over again in her little crooning song. Suddenly, she noticed a tiny piece of paper lying on the ground. Oh, what luck, she said to herself. This must be a letter. One time, when the king, the great ruler of our country, held his court in the meadow close by, many people brought him letters and laid them at his feet. Now I, too, even I, the little white hen, have a letter. I am going to carry my letter to the king. The next morning, the little white hen started bravely out on her long journey. She carried the letter very carefully in her little brown basket. It was a long distance to the royal palace where the king lived. The little white hen had never been so far from home in all her life. After a while, she met a friendly fox. Foxes and little white hens are not usually very good friends, you know. But this fox was a friend of the little white hen. Once upon a time, she had helped the fox to escape from a trap. And the fox had never forgotten her kindness to him. Oh, little white hen, where are you going? asked the fox. Oh, replied the little white hen, going to the royal palace to carry a letter to the king. Ah, indeed, little white hen, said the fox. I should like to go with you. Give me your permission to accompany you on your journey. I shall be glad to have you go with me, said the little white hen. It is a very long journey to the royal palace where the king lives. Wouldn't you like me to carry you in my little brown basket? The fox climbed into the little brown basket. After the little white hen had gone on for some distance further, she met a river. Once upon a time the little white hen had done the river a kindness. He had, with great difficulty, thrown some ugly worms upon the bank, and he was afraid they would crawl back in again. The little white hen had eaten them for him. Always after that the river had been her friend. The river called out as soon as he saw her. I am going to the royal palace to carry a letter to the king, replied the little white hen. Little white hen, may I go with you? asked the river. The little white hen told the river that he might go with her and asked him to ride in the little brown basket. So the river climbed into the little brown basket. After the little white hen had journeyed along for a time, she came to a fire. Once upon a time when the fire had been dying, the little white hen had brought some dried grass. The grass had given the fire new life, and always after that, he had been the friend 
of the little white hen. Oh, little white hen, where are you going? The fire asked. I am going to the royal palace to carry a letter to the king, replied the little white hen. Oh, little white hen, may I go with you? asked the fire. I have never been to the royal palace and I have never had even a peep at the king. The little white hen told the fire that he might go with her and asked him to climb into the little brown basket. By this time, the little brown basket was so full that, try as they might, they couldn't make room for the fire. At last, they thought of a plan. The fire changed himself into ashes, and then there was room for him to get into the basket. The little white hen journeyed on and on, and finally, she arrived at the royal palace. Who are you and what are you carrying in your little brown basket? asked the royal doorkeeper when he opened the door. I am the little white hen and I am carrying a letter to the king, replied the little white hen. She didn't say a word about the fox and the river and the fire which she had in her little brown basket. She was so frightened before the great royal doorkeeper of the palace that she could hardly find a voice at all. The royal doorkeeper invited the little white hen to enter the palace and he led her to the royal throne where the king was sitting. The little white hen bowed very low before the king, so low, in fact, that it mussed up all her feathers. Who are you and what is your business? asked the king in his big, deep, kingly voice. I am the little white hen replied the little white hen in her low, frightened little voice. I have come to bring my letter to your royal majesty. She handed the king the piece of paper, which had remained all this time at the bottom of the little brown basket. There were marks of dirt upon it where the friendly fox's feet had rested. It was damp where the river had lain. It had tiny holes in it where the fire had sat after he had turned himself into hot ashes. What do you mean by bringing me this dirty piece of paper? shouted the king in his biggest, deepest, gruffest voice. I am highly offended. I always knew that hens were stupid little creatures. But you are quite the stupidest little hen I ever saw in all my life. Here! And he turned to one of the attendants standing by the throne. Take this stupid little white hen and throw her out into the royal poultry yard. I think we will have her for dinner tomorrow. The tallest of the royal attendants immediately grabbed the little white hen and carried her down the back stairs, through the back gate, out into the royal poultry yard. She still clung to the little brown basket which she had brought with her on her long journey to the royal palace and through all the sad experiences she had met there. When the little white hen reached the royal poultry yard, all the royal fowls flew at her. Some plucked at her rumpled white feathers. Others tried to pick out her eyes. One pulled off the cover of the little brown basket. Out sprang the fox from the little brown basket. And in the twinkling of an eye, he fell upon the fowls of the royal poultry yard. 
not a single fowl was left alive. There was such a great commotion that the king, the queen, the royal attendants and all the royal servants of the palace came rushing out to see what was the matter. The fox had already taken to his heels and the little white hen lost no time in running away too. She did not, however, forget to take her little brown basket with her. The royal household all ran after her in swift pursuit. They had almost caught her when the river suddenly sprang out of the little brown basket and flowed between the little white hen and her royal pursuers. They couldn't get across without canoes. While they were getting the canoes and climbing into them, the little white hen had time to run a long way. She had almost reached a thick forest where she could easily hide herself when the royal pursuers drew again near. And then the fire, which had changed itself into hot ashes, jumped out of the little brown basket. It immediately became dark, so dark, that the royal household could not even see each other's faces. And of course, they could not see in which direction the little white hen was running. There was nothing for them to do but to return to the royal palace and live on beef and mutton. But the fire, which had turned itself into ashes, sprang out of the little brown basket so suddenly that it scattered ashes all over the little white hen. From that day, she was always speckled where the ashes had fallen upon her. The chickens of the little white hen, who was now a little speckled hen, were all speckled too. So were their chickens and their chickens and their chickens' chickens, even down to this very day. Whenever you see a speckled hen, you may know that she is descended from the little white hen, who carried a letter to the king and who, in her adventures, became the first speckled hen. Let's take a journey with the history of the seven families of Lake Pipple Popple. In former days, that is to say once upon a time, there lived in the land of Grembelemble seven families. They lived by the side of the great Lake Pipple Popple. One of the seven families indeed lived in the lake and on the outskirts of the city of Tosh, which, excepting when it was quite dark, they could see plainly. The names of all these places you have probably heard of and you have only not to look in your geography books to find out all about them. 
Now, the seven families who lived on the borders of the great Lake Pipopopo were as follows. There was a family of two old parrots and seven young parrots. There was a family of two old storks and seven young storks. There was a family of two old geese and seven young geese. There was a family of two old owls and seven young owls. There was a family of two old guinea pigs and seven young guinea pigs. There was a family of two old cats and seven young cats. And there was a family of two old fishes and seven young fishes. The parrots lived upon the sofsky pofsky trees, which were beautiful to behold and covered with blue leaves, and they fed upon fruit, artichokes and striped beetles. The storks walked in and out of Lake Pipple and ate frogs for breakfast and buttered toast for tea, but on account of the extreme length of their legs, they could not sit down. And so they walked about continually. The geese, having webs to their feet, caught quantities of flies which they ate for dinner. The owls anxiously looked after mice, which they caught and made into seagull puddings. The guinea pigs toddled about the gardens and ate lettuces and Cheshire cheese. The cats sat still in the sunshine and fed upon sponge biscuits. The fishes lived in the lake and fed chiefly on boiled periwinkles. And all these seven families lived together in the utmost fun and felicity. One day, all the seven fathers and the seven mothers of the seven families agreed that they would send their children out to see the world. So they called them all together and gave them each eight shillings and some good advice, some chocolate drops and a small green Morocco pocketbook to set down their expenses in. They then particularly entreated them not to quarrel and all the parents sent off their children with a parting injunction. If, said the old parrots, you find a cherry, do not fight about who should have it. And, said the old storks, if you find a frog, divide it carefully into seven bits, but on no account quarrel about it. And the old geese said to the seven young geese, Whatever you do, be sure you do not touch a plum pudding flea. And the old owls said, If you find a mouse, tear him up into seven slices and eat him cheerfully, but without quarrelling. And the old guinea pigs said, Have a care that you eat your lettuces should you find any, not greedily, but calmly. 
And the old cats said, Be particularly careful not to meddle with a clangle-wangle if you should see one. And the old fishes said, Above all things avoid eating a blue bus was for they do not agree with fishes and give them pain in their toes. So all the children of each family thanked their parents and making in all 49 polite bows, they went into the wide world. The seven young parrots had not gone far when they saw a tree with a single cherry on it which the oldest parrot picked instantly. But the other six, being extremely hungry, tried to get it also, on which all the seven began to fight. And they scuffled and huffled and ruffled and shuffled and puffled and muffled and buffled and duffled and fluffled and duffled and bruffled and screamed and shrieked and squealed and squeaked and... Clawed and snapped and bit and bumped and thumped and dumped and flumped each other till they were all torn into little bits and at last there was nothing left to record this painful incident except the cherry and seven small green feathers and that was the vicious and voluble end of the seven young parrots. When the seven young storks set out, they walked or flew for fourteen weeks in a straight line, and for six weeks more in a crooked one, and after that they ran as hard as they could for one hundred and eight miles, and after that they stood still and made a simultaneous shatter-clatter flattery noise with their bills. About the same time they perceived a large frog spotted with green and with a sky-blue stripe under each ear. So, being hungry, they immediately flew at him and were going to divide him into seven pieces when... They began to quarrel as to which of his legs should be taken off first. One said this and another said that. And while they were all quarrelling, the frog hopped away. And when they saw that he was gone, they began to chatter, clatter, and huffled blatter, blatter, patter, blatter, matter, clatter, flatter, quatter, more violently than ever. And... After they had fought for a week, they pecked each other all to little pieces so that at last nothing was left of any of them except their bills. And that was the end of the seven young storks. When the seven young geese began to travel, they went over a large plain on which there was but one tree. And that was a very bad one. So 
Four of them went up to the top of it and looked about them, while the other three waddled up and down and repeated poetry and their last six lessons in arithmetic, geography and cookery. Presently they perceived a long way off an object of the most interesting and obese appearance, having a perfectly round body exactly resembling a boiled plum pudding with two little wings and a beak and three feathers growing out of his head and only one leg. So, after a time, all the seven young geese said to each other, Beyond all doubt, this beast must be a plum pudding flea. On which they uncautiously began to sing aloud, Plum pudding flea, plum pudding flea, who, wherever you be, oh, come to our tree, and listen, oh, listen, oh, listen to me. And no sooner had they sung this verse than the plum pudding flea began to hop and skip on his one leg with the most dreadful velocity, and came straight to the tree, where he stopped and looked about him, in a vacant and voluminous manner, on which the seven young geese were greatly alarmed, and all of a tremble-bembo, so one of them put out his great neck, and just touched him with the tip of his bill. But no sooner had he done this than... The plum pudding flea skipped and hopped about more and more and higher and higher, after which he opened his mouth, and to the great surprise and indignation of the seven geese, began to bark so loudly and furiously and terribly that they were totally unable to bear the noise, and by degrees every one of them suddenly tumbled down quite dead. And so that was the end of the seven young geese. Now, let's take a journey with The History of the Seven Families of Lake Pipple by Edward Lear, Part 2. When the seven young owls set out, they sat every now and then on the branches of old trees and never went far at one time. And one night, when it was quite dark, they thought they heard a mouse. But as the gas lights were not lighted, they could not see him, so they called out, Is that a mouse? On which a mouse answered, Squeaky, peaky, weaky, 
yes it is. And immediately all the young owls threw themselves off the tree, meaning to alight on the ground. But they did not perceive that there was a large well below them, into which they all fell superficially and where every one of them drowned in less than half a minute. So that was the end of the seven young owls. The seven young guinea pigs went into a garden full of gooseberry bushes and tiggery trees, under one of which they fell asleep. When they awoke, they saw a large lettuce which had grown out of the ground while they had been sleeping and which had an immense number of green leaves at which they all exclaimed, Lettuce, oh lettuce, lettuce, oh lettuce, oh lettuce leaves, oh lettuce leave this tree and eat, lettuce, oh lettuce, lettuce leaves. And instantly the seven young guinea pigs rushed with such extreme force against the lettuce plant and hit their heads so vividly against its stalk that the concussion brought on directly an incipient transitional inflammation of their noses, which grew worse and worse and worse and worse till it incidentally killed them all seven. And that was the end of the seven young guinea pigs. The seven young cats set off on their travels with great delight and rapacity, but on coming to the top of a high hill, they perceived at a long distance off a clangle-wangle. And in spite of the warning they had had, they ran straight up to it. Now, the clangle-wangle is a most dangerous and elusive beast. by no means commonly to be met with. They live in the water as well as on the land, using their long tail as a sail when in the former element. Their speed is extreme, but their habits of life are domestic and superfluous, and their general demeanour pensive and pellucid. On summer evenings they may sometimes be observed near the lake Pipopopo, standing on their heads and humming their national melodies They subsist entirely on vegetables, excepting when they eat veal or mutton or pork or beef or fish or saltpetre. The moment the clangle-wangle saw the seven young cats approach, he ran away. And as he ran straight on for four months, and the cats, though they continued to run, could never overtake him, they all gradually died of fatigue and of exhaustion and never afterwards recovered. And this was the end of the seven young cats. The seven young fishes swam across the lake Pipopopple and into the river and into the ocean, where, most unhappily for them, they saw on the fifteenth day of their travels a bright blue bus was, and instantly swam after him, 
but the blue boss was plunged into a perpendicular, spicular, orbicular, quadrangular, circular depth of soft mud, where in fact his house was. And the seven young fishes, swimming with great uncomfortable velocity, plunged also into the mud, quite against their will, and not being accustomed to it, were all suffocated in a very short period, and that was the end of the seven young fishes. After it was known that the seven young parrots and the seven young storks and the seven young geese and the seven young owls and the seven young guinea pigs and the seven young cats and the seven young fishes were all dead, then the frog and the plum pudding flea and the mouse and the clangle wangle and the blue boss was all met together to rejoice over their good fortune, and they collected the seven feathers of the seven young parrots and the seven bills of the seven young storks and the lettuce and the other objects in a circular arrangement at their base. They danced a hornpipe round all these memorials until they were quite tired after which they gave a tea party and a garden party and a ball and a concert and then returned to their respective homes full of joy and respect, sympathy, satisfaction and disgust. I hope you enjoyed all of our stories for this month. And if you subscribe to our Patreon page, you can enjoy even more perks and resources. Here's to stories aplenty that fill our hearts with grace and goodness, hope and light, so that we remember, as my favourite poet says, All shall be well, all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. Be well, my friends, be well, and join me next time for Journey with Story. Music and post-production was by Colette Jonas.